0: This is wading deep, a podcast that explores the connection between environmental justice and race.
1: Racism pollutes our people and land resilience, our strength of spirit and hand, resurrection, our healing made whole we stand.
0: I'm your host, the Reverend Jamon Taylor, rector at St. Ambrose Episcopal Church, Raleigh, North Carolina, a congregation with a long history of challenging environmental racism. I am honored to welcome today's guests who are renowned historians. Mr. Ernest Dollar is executive director of the City of Raleigh Museum. The Reverend Dr. Brooks Grabner is the retired Rector of Historic St. Matthews Episcopal Church, Hillsborough, North Carolina, as well as the historiographer for the Episcopal Diocese of North Carolina. And Dr. Earl Imes is archivist, curator, historic preservation, and I guess farming archivist that I learned recently. Uh, he's with the North Carolina Museum of History. Welcome, gentlemen. The topic today is history surrounding St. Ambrose using the congregation's three physical locations as time markers. Smoky Hollow from 1868 to 1900, the church's move near the Prince Hall District Third Ward from 1900 to 1965, and the move to Rochester Heights from 1965 to the present. And this conversation will center on that third move, to Rochester Heights in 1965. And uh, Mr. Dollar, what was happening in Raleigh in the years leading up to St. Ambrose's second move and the city designating Rochester Heights as an intentional black community?
2: Um, Well, you know, this is the the third move of the church comes at an incredibly interesting time in American history. It's the height of the civil rights movement. there's lots of discussions on school desegregation, school integration, um, uh, suburban sprawl, um, urban decay. So by the time 65, 65, um, there's been a great movement within Raleigh as, as a lot of resources to the black communities are starting to dry up and uh, that there's a, there's a real desire to leave the city courts, to go to some of these suburban areas, uh, suburban neighborhoods that are popping up around the city. And certainly we see the first time we see um, um, black um, construction, you see black designers, you see black developers who build these specific places almost like we saw after the Civil War, places of their own. So you see like Rochester Heights pop up, more hills, Madonna Acres, and a lot of these other neighborhoods that offer African-Americans a slice of that suburban dream without sort of the, the grunge of downtown. So. Um, the area around the church is is largely abandoned. Um, You see a lot of the the area today where the church was is completely decimated. It's still a vacant block almost. So um, it's a real struggle for access to resources and to try to find places of their own. And certainly with the move to Rochester Heights um, puts the church in sort of a an area that is, is endangered by flooding. It's a flood zone. So um, it sort of follows this trend we've been talking about on these series about how African-Americans are pushed to non-desirable areas or less desirable areas just because of the way that the, the, the banking system is set up, um, legal codes of segregation, and a number of factors just push them to places that are... Um, that were not meant to be settled in large numbers in big places.
1: Well, one, one thing too about that time frame and what's going on is um and and toward that point is the redlining that had been going on from the federal government in relation to city planning and resources uh and the federally almost imposed segregation where not only it pushed uh, African Americans and people of color out of those more desirable areas it wouldn't give them financing but again here in Raleigh uh w- w- what happens is is a is, is a man named John winters uh, starts a uh, construction company in eighteen fifty i mean eighteen fifty seven um, on nineteen fifty seven and um, and actually begins to build these really modern uh post World War II um suburban attractive neighborhoods um that um also he has the possibility to help with financing help with uh, you know the resources so it creates new communities almost equitable even though they're separate, and like you say, it's more desirable, even though they're in the flood zones in those areas, uh, than being in the more restrictive spaces in town. Uh, and and so, so Raleigh, unlike many other communities, not only in the South, but throughout the nation, when redlining is going on, and these uh, really desperate, mostly inner-city Black communities are being left, uh, you know, with with the leftovers, uh, Raleigh is moving forward into the 20th century at that time with the latest as far as home building and construction and financing and being able to create spaces and communities um, uh, that are notched above uh, you know what, what was downtown. And, and like you say, lends itself earnest toward almost an abandonment of those spaces.
0: Brooks, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about gradualism. I know you've done um, extensive research on gradualism in the church. Um, Talk a little bit about that. That coincides a little bit um, ahead of this time, but certainly um, bridges this time period.
3: Yes, and um, if I uh, would also like to um, talk a little bit about the uh, leadership of Father Calloway. Uh, in the life of the diocese. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So, after Brown v. Board of Education, uh, the Diocese of North Carolina, like most Southern dioceses, were led by bishops who, um, uh, on the one hand, gave assent to the notion of uh, equality, but at the same time suggested that the pace at which desegregation should occur should be set by the dominant white culture. And so that leads to the principles of gradualism. And first, Bishop Keenick and then his successor, Bishop Baker, uh, were both committed gradualists. Um, and, uh, uh, and and as a result, uh, by the time you get to the mid to late uh, 19th Sixties, um, the Episcopal Church is becoming deeply divided, as much as society is, over um, issues of, of justice uh, and equity. And uh, uh, it's uh, uh, in that period of time, um, Father Calloway's voice becomes increasingly important uh, as a as a within the life of our diocese, uh, speaking to these larger issues of justice. And uh, he begins to take increasingly leadership, uh, you know, increasing leadership roles in Raleigh, but also in the diocese, and becomes an incredibly important voice, calling the church to a more robust engagement. You're absolutely right, Brooks.
0: The importance of Father Calloway cannot go Overstated, understated. He certainly comes to St. Ambrose in 1959 as a relatively young priest from Texas, and within six years um, is able to get a $100,000 loan to build the current edifice, St. Ambrose, in, in 1965. It's what we see in St. Ambrose moving from the uh, third ward to Rochester Heights, it's for the second time in our history we physically move the black church closer to black people. When we read the diocesan archives, and Brooks has done extensive research on this, the Journal of the Episcopal Convention in 1901, uh, then Arch Deacon for Colored Works said, uh, one of the greatest things St. Ambrose has done is in its short histories to physically move the black church closer to black people. In that sense, we picked up our edifice in Smoky Hollow and rolled it uh, to Third Ward, and so we do it again. We did it again in 1965 and we moved to Rochester Heights, which is in the Walnut Creek wetland. And we know that Walnut Creek uh, in uh, 1887 is where the city of Raleigh began pulling its fresh water supply and it needed a place to dump the sewage. And so it dumped sewage in Walnut Creek. The convention and belief during that time is only took 50 feet of running water for sewage To be potable which sounds ridiculous to us now because if you pour sewage in a river and walk 50 feet and put a cup down it's still going to smell like sewage but that was a convention during that time and so for 70 years uh 1887 1957 the city of raleigh dumps raw sewage in walnut creek it also was a de facto dumping ground for garbage and this is the area zone for black people to live as i like to say um the city dumps sewage dump garbage, and then they dump Negroes. And because it's in Walnut Creek, which is prone to flooding, that's exactly what happened, that many homes were flooded and really lifted off their foundation because of the rising creek. And it was the leadership of Father Calloway, who uh, was a two-term city council member, who uh, reached out to Dr. Norman Camp, um, environmentalist and chemist, who helped found Partners for Environmental Justice. And it was Father Calloway because of his engagement at the city level was able to make sure that Dr. Camp was appointed to Parks and Rec to do the work of um, rezoning. And so here we see in the modern day what happened in the founding of the church. That 1868 newly emancipated African-Americans and and those who uh, free people of color, part of the General Assembly, Putting forward the legislative act that makes granting the land in which St. Ambrose found itself in 1868 possible. And then we have over 100 years later, um, Father Calloway, seat of power, city council, tapping Dr. Camp, environmentalist, making sure he's on parts and wrecks. And we get the genesis of Partners for Environmental Justice that still exists today. And just to show how power continues to flex uh, in the fall of 2020, the one of the largest developers in the southeast, John Kane, uh, proposed a 150 acre development straddling Walnut Creek, only 3,000 feet up Walnut Creek from St. Ambrose, um, a half mile upstream, and it was the community of St. Ambrose, Partners for Environmental Justice, and the new initiative that St. Ambrose started called One Wake, that really took the developer John Kane the task, and and mandated in the rezoning requirement. That green stormwater infrastructure had to be a part of the project, a low impact development, that stormwater needed to remain on site, and even convinced the developer to start a $2.5 million grant match, grant matching fund at six points downstream from the development, one of those being St. Ambrose and Rochester Heights. That if the water level increased, it is the developer to mitigate flooding and to mitigate rise in, in stormwater. So we, we see the history um, of throughout the history of St. Ambrose, uh, this, this stream of um, action, proaction, um, environmentalism and response.
2: You know, I think it's a it's a theme that runs through through all of these podcasts. It is it's a, it's a synthesis of divine inspiration and political action.
3: Well put, Ernest. <laughs>
1: yes. Yeah.
0: yeah. When we talk about divine inspiration, uh, Brooks knows this well. In, in the Episcopal Church, when we when we talk about sin, uh, we typically think of sin being Um, some grievance against God, acting out against God, going contrary to God. Uh, But we in the church believe that there are actually four directions of sin and four points of sin. One, which is obvious against God. Uh, The other is against another human being, how we disrespect another human being. Uh, The third is against ourselves, that we are not kind and we can sin against ourselves. And the fourth is against nature and creation. And so what we see about divine inspiration, uh, and I would argue divine action, is that where uh, people have sinned against the environment, in this case, Rochester Heights, uh, the Walnut Creek wetlands, it has been those residents who happen to be Black people who work uh, for the reconciliation of human beings to the environment that the city of Raleigh dumps sewage and garbage and yet it is those black residents who are relegated to that undesirable location to live, who actually bring about the restoration of the creation that was not decimated by people who looked like black and brown folk, Um, and we can we can see that theme run, not only in Raleigh uh, but all over the united states and some would and i would argue uh even the world but it's it's a very powerful narrative of you know divine inspiration and action of not simply staying within four walls and worshiping but actually becoming engaged and bringing what i call resurrection to all of the created order
2: again to follow that up there's a there's sorry there's understand well said. Yes, there's a there's a movement of a restorative history um, these days, that, you know, there is there's reconciliation through telling the past in order to shape the future. So I think that, you know, uh, this series by, by shedding light on these issues that have been going on over 150 years that it gives us a, a, a like Earl said early on, it's a it's a beacon for freedom for the future. For us to follow and to to restore what the, what has gone on wrong in the past for the future. So it is through sharing these stories and shedding light on these issues that helps the you know guides us the light into the future. Well, and that and that
1: and to tag to that, uh, Ernest, you know, this is uh, a human effort. This is uh, human rights. This is something that. Um, as all-inclusive and all on board. And going back to the time frame that we're discussing, the, the modern civil rights era of the 50s and 60s, uh, it, it was people like Father Calloway um, uh, as, as a white clergy member. And uh, another person who comes to, mind, comes to mind here in Raleigh is the Reverend W.W. W. uh over at Pullen uh, Memorial here in Raleigh who was a white southern baptist uh who came came uh to that church also in the 1950s at the beginning of the civil rights movement and they put a stake down and 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 pretty much insisted on equality practicing it and literally preaching it from the pulpit and it take it took and it takes today like it took then those voices for racial equality that are black, white, and Indian, all in the same concert in unison to affect that, that change. And and so, again, here in Raleigh, you have this spirit, the spirit core of people in the clergy from uh, different churches and different worship places who are, coming to the fold and as Dr. Martin Luther King said uh, in the Selma of Montgomery March uh, had, um, you know, the white photographer Spider Martin from the Birmingham newspaper not come out and captured uh, what happened to the people on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in that first march, it would have just been the black people talking about it and unfortunately it would have been relegated to the same outcomes as so many other injustices. So, the the fact that here in Raleigh you have again these white clergy members at this time taking these bold and courageous stances for human rights and for civil rights uh, in Raleigh is it, it it really falls into the 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 play into the the same spirit decor that that Raleigh is this place where there's this opportunity for freedom and equality, uh, particularly in the South at that time. And even today in in our country.
0: I appreciate your comments, um, Brooks, Ernest and Earl. Um, As we round out this segment, I I just wanna ask the question um, from people who look at the presence, the present condition through the lens of history, what gives you hope?
1: Well, conversations like these um, are hopeful. And, um, you know, um, I guess to get into the secular a little bit, I've been kind of following uh, President Barack Obama's and Bruce Springsteen's uh, podcast and talking about you know uh, our country in the current state and and Bruce Springsteen made you know a very simple yet accused observation, and that is uh when our country, our nation, our communities uh come to reconcile the history, learn from it, and build from it uh we we will be going in these same historical cycles in other words or we won't you know accomplish that goal that you just mentioned so so we, so we're going to need to you know to to continue to walk in the courage and the pathways of courage and as of courage that um you know the father callaways and and the Dr. Kings and, and the Clarence Leitners and, and uh, and you know, folks here in Raleigh, Elizabeth Cofield and, or W.W. Um, uh, w. Finlay and those folks who came from different race, racial, socioeconomic backgrounds with a common goal and a common spirit for equality and freedom for all.
2: Yeah, I think I'll, I'll tag on to what Earl said is that you know um, America is still very much an experiment. So it's a very long experiment. We are still trying to figure things out. And those founding fathers um, wrote words that are inspiring. They may not have applied to everyone at the time, but it gave America a blueprint for a successful, prosperous country with people who are dedicated to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and they're all created equal. So this is sort of the the shining star to keep reaching for is that as we go through the ups and downs that we have been through these before. And my hope is that we can can look back as we discuss the shared history and and take strength from our successes and learn from our mistakes and keep striving for this, this lofty goal of this wonderful place where everyone is equal.
1: Forming a more perfect union, I think, is what it's called. There you go, brother.
3: (laughs) And I think, speaking about restorative history, um, we've touched upon some important figures uh, this afternoon in this podcast. And one of the things that gives me hope is that it's not too late to tell the story of James Henry Harris. It's not too late to tell the story of Father James King. It's not too late to tell the story of Father Arthur Calloway. Um, We can um, engage in a more capacious understanding of our history and um, and, uh, point towards um, acts of bravery and commitment and social justice in the past, and, um, and you know, build from there, build that more perfect union.
0: Thank you so much. I want to um, show gratitude to Mr. Ernest Dollar, executive director of the City of Raleigh Museum, the Reverend Dr. Brooks Gravener, the retired rector of historic St. Matthew's Episcopal Church, hillsboro North Carolina, and also historiographer for the Episcopal Diocese of North Carolina and Dr. Earl Imes, archivist, curator, a historic preservation at the North Carolina Museum of History, as well as a farmer. Thank you for your knowledge and imparting that knowledge today.
1: You're welcome, thank you. So thank, you. thank you. It's been, a, been an honor. You. Thank you, yes, thank everyone.
0: The Waiting Deep Podcast comes to you from a place we affectionately call The Bros, St. Ambrose Episcopal Church, Raleigh, North Carolina. Follow us on Facebook, YouTube, The Bros NC on Twitter, and The Bros 1868 on Instagram. I am your host, the Reverend Jermond Taylor. Gods are going to trouble the water of environmental racism, resurrecting a river of life, clear, as crystal shalom salam peace